Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good morning. It's been a week since we did session together, Daibosatsu Zendo's 45th anniversary. And it was a particularly profound session with special ceremonies for our beloved Dharma friend and lineage holder, Congo Jumpo Kando Dennis Kelly Roshi. And it was wonderful to have Bikara Roshi and Reishin San there, and good to see you this morning again. So I'm happy to turn this over to Chigan Roshi, who will present a talk and lead the discussion afterwards. Welcome. Welcome to yet another get together, a get together to explore in and to investigate that what we have in common, which I call at times the human condition. It's a privilege to have found this kind of practice. And I hope that many people in their lives will be able to find a practice that suits their conditions, their circumstances, and their needs. So, and today I would like to also pay respect to somebody else who worked very quietly, not in the spoken word, not in the original word, but in the word of translation. And that is Thomas Cleary. Thomas Cleary, if you have a book about Zen, most likely you have a book that was translated by Thomas Cleary. Thomas Cleary was born in 1949 and he passed away on June 20th this year, quietly, uh, in his Oakland home. He produced over his career over 80 books. And they were not just limited to the Buddhist realm. He also translated the Quran. And he also translated several texts dealing with Taoism. So he earned his PhD in East Asian cultures and languages from Harvard University. And as if, as if that were not enough, he also uh, earned a JD, a doctorate in laws from uh, UC Berkeley in California. Yet soon he realized that academia was not the place he wanted to hang out. And he dedicated his life to the translation of source materials 
And thus we ended up with 80 wonderful, wonderfully translated books. One of these books is a very thin volume here, and it is called The Original Face. It is a compilation, an anthology of a number of Linzai teachers in the tradition in which we practice here. And he edited, he put it together. And today I would like to visit one portion of that, that is a translation from one of our ancestors, Shiro Bunan Zenji. So Shiro Bunan, 17th century, he was the teacher of Hakuin's teacher. So Shiro Bunan amongst his 24 Dharma successors was Shoju Rojin, the teacher of Hakuin, the root teacher of Hakuin Ekaku. And Shido Bunan, we know about him that he, he was a gatekeeper most of his life uh, on one of the great roads in Japan. And only after the age of 40, he joined the monkhood. But he had kept his post at the gate and there was a Zen master, Gudo Toshuk Zenji, who was traveling around and stopped at the gate and responded kindly to the gatekeeper's request for instruction over the years, which led to Shido Bunan becoming a monk in his 40s. He was quite austere. He kept his students to a very, very strict discipline. And today I would like to read what he used to say to his students. There is no special principle in the study of the way. It's only necessary to see and hear directly. Directly seeing, there is no seeing. Directly hearing, there is no hearing. You must fuse inside and outside into one solid, thoroughly peaceful state before you can do this. Although you people are Buddhas right now, yet you don't realize it. If you know, you go against the Buddhas and patriarchs. If you don't know, you revolve in the routine of birth and death. At this point, if you don't have the transcendental eye, how can you attain realization? Knowing the fundamental, unattached from myriad things, who knows that which is outside of words? Which the Buddhas and patriarchs did not transmit. Although our school considers awakening in particular to be fundamental, that doesn't necessarily mean that once you are awakened, you stop there. It is necessary only to practice according to reality and complete the way. According to reality means knowing the fundamental mind as it really is. 
practice means getting rid of obstructions caused by habitual actions by means of true insight and knowledge. Awakening to the way is comparatively easy. Accomplishment of practical application is what is considered most difficult. That is why the great teacher Bodhidharma said that those who know the way are many, whereas those who carry out the way are few. You simply must wield the jewel sword of sovereignty of wisdom and kill this fixated self. When this fixated self is destroyed, you cannot fail to reach the realm of great liberation and great freedom naturally. If you can really get to see your fundamental mind, you must treat it as though you were raising an infant, walking, standing, sitting, lying down, illuminate everything everywhere with awareness, not letting the infant be disturbed by attachments. If you can keep that infant mind clear and distinct, it is like the baby is gradually growing up until it is equal to its parents. Calmness and wisdom, clear and penetrating. Your function will be equal to that of the Buddhas and ancestors. How can such a great matter be considered idle? Now, the reason that we consider human life most advanced is for no other reason than being means to realize true liberation in this lifetime. However, if you seek profit and support, considering these the ultimate truth in every moment of thought used by delusive ideas, vainly ending your life at the time of death, Nothing you can do will be of any use. The Buddha came into the world to guide those on the path of illusion, directly pointed to the fundamental mind, letting them leave behind birth, death, and the 10,000 things. While this body clearly exists, clearly realizing this body does not exist, while they are clearly seeing, hearing, discernment and knowledge, clearly realizing there are no seeing, hearing, discernment or knowledge. This is called the effect of true investigation. How could it be easy? When you go near fire, you are warm. When you go near water, you are cool. And when you go near people imbued with the way, they naturally make your mind die and conceptions dissolve, causing all hindrances to cease. This is called the spiritual effect of complete virtue. Shido Bunan Zenji making an interesting case 
for this formal practice that we find ourselves in here. A very specific formal practice, specific setting, a specific schedule, images, statues, robes, chants, all of it. Well, how does it relate to that liberation? What is it that we are liberating whom? And what is it liberated from? These are very, very important questions in our practice. What can we learn through this setup in which we find ourselves? I am sure when you go and you visit the temples, there are many different statues. And often we ask ourselves, oh, what is this one? What does this mean? What is this for? Why do we chant to Ida Ten in the kitchen? What do these mantras mean? Isn't that just some imported cultural baggage that comes from a culture that we have not here? Well, certainly we could look at it that way. But let's look a little deeper and take it as an opportunity to meet aspects of life and aspects of practice. Various bodhisattvas, various statues and named entities in this tradition represent aspects of our own life, aspects of our human aspiration and aspects of our human needs. When we look at them, when we perceive them and make, the, make these entities into a thing, an idea or a concept, we get stuck. We get stuck and we don't see beyond the statue of Avalokiteshvara. Why is the statue there? Not that we go and bow in front of it, not to be inspired by its beauty necessarily, which are all wonderful things to happen. It's the profundity of standing into an expertly carved and gilded image of a bodhisattva can be deeply moving, but that's like awakening to it. As Shido Bunan says, how do we realize it now after that? He cites Bodhidharma. There are many people who know the way, but the ones who realize it and actualize it are but a few. Is it all based on knowledge? Hmm. No. 
It's based, yes, on knowledge of having met ourselves, our humanity, and the various aspects of our human desires, our human fears, our human aspirations. And once we do that, this pantheon, you could call it, takes on a deep, deep meaning in our lives because we see ourselves. This is myself. It's not an other anymore. It is not a concept anymore. It is not a historical depiction of some kind of teaching. You know, I have a book that's about two inches thick. It is a treatise about mudra, all the mudras that you could find on Buddha statues. And it's wonderful to look at. But not only from the academic point of view of being able to identify the aspects of the expression of these images, but also as a teaching tool to teach us that what is mudra for us? How do we manifest mudra, not just in zazen, but our practice is to make each and every of our movements that deep expression of the aspects of our common humanity. This idea of raising an infant is such a wonderful picture. It's not that we meet something that we need to do anything but nurture, you know? And that's a very different approach than falling into the understanding that because this is not an easy undertaking that we have to fight our way through. Yes, it is not easy. It is not easy, as Shido Bunan says. But how do we approach it? In the worst of your Zazen periods, when you sit there, ask yourself, what is my expression? Facing the world is facing that infant with an expression that is tortured or labored or self-loathing or whatever. That infant that we are holding in front of us, which we call the world, will mirror back to us what our expression is. And we all know it will cry if we scare it. So, mudra, posture, all of it is a teaching that calls us to be the body of the bodhisattva, to be the expression of the aspects that are taught through the images of the bodhisattvas. 
it's a wonderful, wonderful practice because when we learn that these are aspects of our own human self, then as Shibayama Zenke Roshi, the abbot of Nanzenji some years ago, he's of course departed by now, said, this awakening is the awakening to what he calls absolute subjectivity, which means everything is permeated because it is yourself. No difference. It also teaches us when we experience the distance in our lives, we have to look at it. What creates the difference? The distance. What do we objectify? What do we reject? Very, very powerful teachings. So today is also a special day for humanity from the point of view of space travel. While we were sitting here, Sir Richard Branson in his uh, personal spacecraft was able to experience a few minutes of no gravity, zero gravity with a couple of passengers in the spacecraft in which he hopes to take others who are willing to pay large amounts of money into space. It is a technical achievement that somebody from their own pocketbook should be able to do that. And of course, it's also important for this person to be the first one because the next billionaire is lined up nine days later to do the same thing. And the third one is waiting in the wings with his own space program. Now, we could just look down at that and say, ah, how silly. These are boys in men's bodies who have the means to procure their own space toys. But let's see it as the expression of what we are doing on the cushion. We sit on the cushion, the planet we are sitting on with a very strong gravity that we have been used to from the beginning of our emergence of a self idea. When we sit, we develop the ability through bodhicitta, through our becoming awake, to move upwards, to propel ourselves and eventually reach the velocity that is necessary to leave that surface of I am. And when we leave that surface of I am and actually get to that experience of an orbital view, of a global view where suddenly this thing that seemed like everything there is, is just a speck in space. Things do really change. Well, granted, it is much cheaper to sit down on a cushion than uh, blasting uh, millions and billions of dollars into the air and uh, adding to uh, more pollution from exhaust gas from these rockets, but it's the same expression 
just in a different way. Now, of course, wouldn't it be nice if some of these gentlemen would pay their workers living wage? Wouldn't it be nice if some of these gentlemen would provide for the people who are hungry across this world or help distribute with that amount of money something that has a broader implication than just being first? So the orbital view in Zazen, sitting with our breath and learning how to accumulate that escape velocity from the planet I am, you are all astronauts. No cellphonauts being pulled back by nature, by the gravity to coming back into this. Yes, I am. We do live on this planet. We have to take care of this planet and each other. And it's not an escape. It is just travel, expansion, and being able to have that orbital global view that opens not the darkness of space, and makes that world we live on insignificant. No, that blackness, that darkness of space is the profundity and the dimension of an open heart that can embrace planets, solar systems, galaxies, universes, and first and most of all, each other. So if you think it's a stretch to go from uh, Shido Bunan needing the child to some billionaire's space toys back to the cushion, no, there is, there is no difference. And this is the wonderful teaching of the Buddha that there is nothing in our lives, in our experience that can be left out because all of it arises from this activity of Dharma. And this activity of Dharma, of Inga, of karma, of time, of change, whatever we want to call it, is us, is you. We are. And as such, even if individuals amass billions of dollars and don't spend them necessarily in the most beneficial way for everybody else. Well, we are here. The baby is right in front of us. Let's smile. Let's blow it a kiss. And let's hug it gently. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.